Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com slash Vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Nothing is going to happen unless we figure out how to stop people from just being not paid indefinitely. Well, if you've got any ideas, let us know. Share them in the Facebook group, I guess. <laughs> sure. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Jared Lind, Sarah Cliff. The government continues to be shut down. Um, but we're open. Which we, we are open, uh, but we, we wanted to talk about that. And I've noticed over the past few days a sort of change in the temperament among people I know who have been furloughed, which was, you know, despite all the seriousness, really, when people first went on furlough, it was kind of like, staycation fun, at least for the people I know. Obviously, there there are some people in more dire economic circumstances, et cetera. But a, a lot of folks were like, OK, we've been through shutdowns before. Like, this is annoying, but it's fine. It's now gone on long enough where people are looking at missing a second paycheck that, you know, middle class people, people who are doing well, are starting to think, this is not good. I would really like to get Paid. People are turned from amused to genuinely annoyed, in my experience. You know, and, and that raises the prospect of, of this having a sort of real impact on people's lives and on the government in a way that the past sort of Trump-era mini-shutdowns or even the somewhat longer Obama-era shutdown just didn't do. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been fascinated by this, obviously, as somebody who's on a beat where people are less likely to be furloughed and more likely to have been working unpaid for the last right. month. But, you know, I definitely I think that we really have hit a point not just where the individuals who like are themselves affected have kind of shifted, but it seems like the debate around the shutdown, not just the kind of political dynamics, but like whether the shutdown itself is an okay or sustainable thing has kind of shifted. And I think part of that is because we don't have any obvious way of how the hell we're getting out of this. Like, it seems, you know, I I think a lot of people who kind of assumed this would be a doable because quick shutdown are kind of like, well, everything that I thought was going to happen to get us out of here has happened and we're not out. But I think it's also because the first iteration of this was kind of a fiscal responsibility, like individual fiscal responsibility debate where, you know, some conservatives were saying, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, that's irresponsible anyway. So it actually shouldn't be a huge problem if you miss a paycheck. But we're now, you know, the first missed paycheck was a week ago. The next missed paycheck is a week from now. Like the idea that we're not talking about living paycheck to paycheck, but living, you know, two paychecks to paycheck or having a cushion, uh, being doing everything right by individual budgetary standards and still not being able to pay rent or mortgage or put food on the table. That's a problem. And I think people, you know, kind of the pundit class, regardless of their ideological leanings, kind of realizes that this is something that is harming 800,000 households. And I mean, I think a lot of that gets shaped, you know, this idea about fiscal responsibility and individual responsibility. It gets shaped by who is having the debate and kind of like how we understand who is a federal employee. Because I think there is often this conception it's like cushy job, you know, long pension, like hard to fire. But the 
people you're talking about, you know, some of the people who are facing either being furloughed or working unpaid are often, you know, low-wage workers, that you do have folks here in Washington who are working on policy jobs and agencies who, you know, have fun, interesting careers. But you also have, you know, if you look at data on the federal workforce, um, their lowest-paying um, jobs are food preparation, and there are about a half million people who work for the government making about $24,000 annually, which right. is a very, very hard salary to accumulate any sort of savings on when, you know, when you're making significantly more. And it is true that federal employees on average are making more than private employees, but that really masks a lot of variation in the salaries that federal employees are making. And it's really hard when you're making twenty five, you know, $40,000 a year to actually amass those kind of savings that would get you through one paycheck, possibly like two, uh, an entire month worth of missed savings. Like that's that's a big deal. Right. The last time we talked about shutdown a couple of weeks ago, you know, Matt and Jane and I, we got into a little bit the idea of, you know, what is being constructed as essential work. But that is much less focused on who are the good employees and more what are the functions of government that liberals or conservatives like. Now that we're at a point where the question isn't who are you forcing to come into work, but how long are you forcing people to have jobs and still not be paid, the question of who is a government worker becomes much more important. And a few pieces have kind of gotten at this. A lot of government employees or would-be government employees questioning the idea that this is a solid pathway to middle-class life. Like, after a half-century where the American middle class has been largely hollowed out, even though everybody thinks of themselves as middle-class, and when, you know, the public sector has been buffered from some of the trends in deunionization, et cetera, that have struck the private sector, the idea that, you know, having a not just a job, but a career in government is a good, steady way to make sure that, you know, you will make enough to support your family and have a middle class lifestyle has been really powerful. And so, you know, the big question for me in this episode is kind of, what does this shutdown do for that? Like, is that in danger? Even if the government were to reopen tomorrow, have people already suffered enough? Yeah, and I and I also think a, a related aspect of that, that that's only sort of come into view in the last week or so of the shutdown is how Trump is playing the essential, non-essential thing differently from the Obama administration that, or Bill Clinton before that, or even Donald Trump previously. In previous shutdowns had been initiated by Congress, sometimes by Republicans, sometimes by Democrats. But it was always Congress who at a certain point pulled the plug, said, we're not going to do a CR. We're going to demand policy concessions. And so the, the president's approach in all of those cases was make the shutdown as annoying as possible for ordinary Americans within the realm of conscience. So, you know, shut things down. Like they they put like closed signs above the Liberty Bell and, and the Washington Monument, right? This is a presidentially initiated shutdown. So Trump keeps trying to minimize the burden on normal people of the shutdown. And the biggest example of that is that, you know, there were stories about how, well, the IRS isn't going to be able to process tax returns, right? And people would hate that. So he's declared that some of those IRS workers are going to be essential and they're going to have to come back. And I was talking to somebody who works on merger review. And, you know, I, I, I was told that, that she was sort of given to understand that, look, if a big merger were to be applied for, that her department would be declared essential again, right? So like they're furloughed right now, but it would be a huge problem for American business if it was impossible to get a merger approved. And their current thinking is, look, they're on furlough now, but if it becomes really important to corporate America that they go to work unpaid, they're going to be called in to do that. I mean, it's good for American citizens, right? There is suffering happening in the country because of government closure, but less suffering than would be happening with a more rigorous definition. But it's also jerking the employees around in a different kind of way, simultaneously saying that, like, we don't value your work as essential in the same way that we value, like, the cops, Right? We're like, you're essential all the time. But if it becomes like a problem for somebody who I, Donald Trump, personally care about, then I'm going to call you back in and you're going to work without pay. And the whole thing is like 
then what's the leverage point, right? The, the theory seems to be that Democrats will respond to the complaints of the federal civil service by giving in to him on the wall or, or something like that, right? That like he's trying to shield ordinary people from the pain, uh, not Native Americans, but like inflict the pain on the federal civil servants while sort of being like both-sidedly disrespectful of their like essential or non-essential status where you can come in, you can go home, you're not getting paid and, and then they're tweeting stuff about how – or there was a, a an administration official wrote a like anonymous piece for – I forget if it was Federalist or oh, Daily Caller. Oh, it was the Caller. Daily Caller, yeah. Yeah, they were like, oh, it's good that none of these people are getting paid, right? And it's, it's a really – different approach because we've never had a shutdown initiated by the president before. So the Daily Caller op-ed, despite not having made much of a splash, like it wasn't, you know, it was something that was kind of in the ether, but it wasn't like the focus of elite discourse really does seem to have gone around federal employee circles. Like the number of folks I've talked to over the last week and, you know, shout out to everybody who responded to my half-hearted crowdsourcing on Twitter about this. But like, I have had so many federal employees bring up to me, well, you know, either like they're either saying, yeah, that Daily Caller op-ed confirmed what we felt like all along, that these people are just trying to get rid of us, or said, yeah, whatever, like it was anonymous, screw them. If they don't want me, I'm just going to stay all the all the more. And that like it gets at the big problem here for kind of the idea of federal employment more broadly, because whether you're one of the civil servants who is currently being painted by conservatives as non-essential, useless, like it's better if they stay home anyway, um, although not, you know, it's it's interesting to me how even the like Grover Norquist types aren't kind of cheering that. They're not like out here saying, yes, government is shrinking. It's just this one anonymous dude. Or whether you're the kind of employee who is being deemed essential and is like having to come in every damn day doing overtime level hours and not getting paid. You know what? Like the one person in your 40 person office who has to be doing the job of 40 people, like in theory, you're being told that your work is so essential that you have to be coming in every day despite not being paid, but you're not being treated as an essential enough human being to get paid. It's really calling to attention the fact that going into government is, for many people, the lower income option. Like, they don't necessarily – they aren't necessarily doing it because it's the most lucrative thing they can be doing or, like, it's, you know, not the least demanding thing they're can, they can be doing. They're doing it because they feel a certain amount of dedication or duty, and that's True to varying extents of, among different people, but it's not a, an infinite thing. Like you can't eat your principles for dinner. And so whether you're the sort of employee who like is being attacked in that anonymous op-ed or the sort of employee who like Donald Trump is making a big deal about how brave you are to be on the front lines – you're still not getting paid either way. So the rhetoric is kind of bumping up against reality in a way that I think is forcing a lot of individual people to call into question, like, how much do the people who are supposed to be running the government actually care about me, the person whose job it, it is to, like, you know, to do the work for them and get paid? Yeah, so I think this kind of, like, goes to this big question of these episodes. like, what does this mean for the civil service long term? And what does this mean? Because I think... Typically, we can look at the government as a pretty stable employer that is, like, not going to go out of business. You're not going to, like, deal with significant, like, shutdowns or tumult. Like, if you go into a government job, it's probably a pretty safe, steady job. Um, and I almost break it into, like, a few different categories of workers. Like, I think about the people, Dara, who, you know, you're talking about who are interested in public service, who think it's exciting and interesting to work for the government. Like, maybe they're doing policy work, you know, maybe they're doing something interesting in Washington. They have already are the type of people who have made the decision that they're going to earn less than they could in consulting and possibly, you know, the type of people who have more of a financial cushion. So I am I'm skeptical of like erosion there because I think people like that have already decided I am okay with, you know, the financial the financial hit I'll take working for the government because it's a career I'm interested in. You know, the type of person I kind of wonder about is like, let's say someone deciding between a job with as a TSA agent, an airport or some kind of job in private security and they could go either way. And I mean, I very I, I kind of wonder like what it looks like to someone who has thought about becoming a TSA agent at this particular moment, watching TSA agents work unpaid for, for weeks now. And, you know, 
I don't I, I don't know how it affects, you know, what is a pretty significant function of the federal government. And like at that level, I, I don't think we have great research on it either because we just don't have I mean, this is the longest shutdown that we've had. We, we don't know what it means for the civil workforce when you have a shutdown of this length in terms of like the long term effects. Well, there's also, I think, like a, a middle rung of people, right? Like there are a lot of lawyers working for the federal government, not necessarily in the top policymaking roles, but in, you know, white collar professional jobs where you earn good salaries. I mean, they're attorneys, uh, but usually less than what a private sector lawyer makes. But the understanding is that you get to work a more reasonable schedule oftentimes, right? Like that's one reason a lot of people do those jobs. Now, you know, of course they like it, right? This is, there's a lot of different areas. People go into areas of, of law and policy that they're interested in, but they're not necessarily like political people per se. They're, you know, educated people looking to do skilled work, but not to have the sort of crazy schedule of private sector client service type work, right? And this really undermines the big value that the government can offer people, which is stability and predictability in those terms, right? Like because you're now suddenly, you know, you're thrown for for a loop, right? It's like these shutdowns had become this thing that happens, like a minor annoyance, but now it's like, oh no, this is actually really bad, right? Like I actually don't have a stable paycheck that my family can count on, right? And that undermines a lot of this. And I also know people who worked in the private sector in the uh, management consulting world and now have gone and they work for the government and they do things like purchasing management, which again, it's a similar thing. Like they have taken lower salaries, still okay salaries, but less than what they were making. But in exchange, they do less travel and they work more normal hours. But now you're in a situation again, and this is like people do a lot when they have kids, right? They they rethink their priorities and like like what do I really need? But now again, you're in a situation where like uh, maybe this wasn't such a good decision, right? Like people who were not like fanatically committed to doing government work, but who are competent people, and it just seemed like an attractive job proposition, and now it maybe doesn't seem like such an attractive. But just job to push here, like what's the What's the other, like, option on the table there, you know? Like, because you still have, like, it's not like the high-powered law firms are getting more flexible. Sure. It seems like this is, like, a less likely, when when you know, like, a high-powered law firm, you're going to have these crazy hours it still seems like more reliable than right, but I mean, like it's that. like things just happen at the margin, you know. And there's there's nonprofits and there's smaller firms, and you know, I, I I don't know how so much that happens with Trump. Like I think we just don't know exactly until we know how this story ends. Right. But, if this is like a four month shutdown, then it's like, well, that doesn't seem like a very reliable. Because like the job. whole thing could, in theory, end tomorrow. I the the people who I've talked to who actually like are in this position, and this definitely was something that came up in in a couple of the messages I've received from people who like, and this is people who have been in government for like. 10 years, a dozen years, like they definitely thought that this was going to be their like mid-career thing. And yeah, you're it's not like you are going to have better hours somewhere else, but you thought that the reason you were giving up a certain amount of not just salary, but like flexibility, like after a certain amount of time in government, it's harder to get hired outside government. And so, you know, you were essentially giving up a lot of things that you would consider career ambitions in order to be able to like leave for the office, go into work, come home at a reasonable hour and play with your kids. Like that idea of the middle class lifestyle not as being defined by income but as being defined by like you know that the job is there but the job is not always haunting you seems really alien to me as a journalist especially a journalist in the Trump era because like literally last night at 10:30, you know, BuzzFeed broke what could be the biggest story of the Trump administration, who knows. Like that's that's it's actually really good. It's fun. It's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we uh too you late know, though. <laughs> right, exactly. Like and that's and that's just how but that's how life is for us. Like it is kind of our job to constantly be on just in case big news is happening. That's not the way most people want to live their lives. And to the extent that you can actually segregate work from life and still be able to make a decent living, like I think that that's an underrated aspect of the mid-century middle class ideal that people have kind of fallen out of with like less security in jobs, less reliable hours, needing to work multiple jobs, needing to do gig work, like 
a lot of what we consider precarity is really lack of control over time. And if you're saying that, yeah, you could be making more money in the private sector, but what you've decided is that you value time and stability, like that is absolutely, it's not just that the current shutdown is a month, it's that people kind of feel like this is demonstrated that this could kind of thing could keep going. Or even like some of the folks I talked to were like, look, between the fact that we were operating on CRs for the last year and now this, I don't even know if, you know, like my contract will be renewed. I don't know if this thing is going to continue to work going forward. Like, I don't know how we're going to be able to hire anybody. So a lot of the promises of predictability that like are a reasonable thing to make a career decision based on are getting eroded by the idea of, well, who knows when the government will shut down the next I'm time. also surprised that we haven't heard more from um, federal law enforcement personnel. Because there's a pretty obvious fungibility between like a career at the DEA and a career in a state police force or, you know, there's there's a million police agencies in the United States, right? And I think the federal ones are generally considered um, prestigious, right? And like jobs you would want to get uh, if you're into policing. Um, Just being told to do a dangerous job without pay, like for no reason, uh, by in, in particular, in this case, by a president who does say he values your work, seems like we're. I mean, that like that sucks. Like, why are DEA agents not getting paid? Like, what what is the what is the point of that? And you know, I mean, I even heard one person. I mean, this was a joke, I think, but you know. <laughs> Trump has been paranoid uh, for uh, throughout his entire presidency about the idea that the deep state is leaking against him. And now here he is just like not paying the whole FBI their salaries. Like that's crazy. Like why are you doing that, right? Um, and, you know, there there's like a very obvious career alternative. But I've never heard of a city just like not paying its police department for an extended period of time because like wh- why would you do that, right? It's completely ridiculous. And it's just the idea arose that this would be a useful political tactic for some reason, even though there's no – like there's never been any reason to think that it is, right? And as far as I know, people don't do it at other levels of government. I mean, I guess they could just yeah. say like, well, we're not going to pay any police officers until I get my way on something about bus lanes. But like it, it never happens because it's absurd. And now it's gotten clearly normalized in federal government in a very strange way. Right. Well, I, I, I mean, I think this kind of – it would be very weird at a city level to say – we're not paying anyone, but like you people are essential, so you stay on because there's no norms around that. And I, and you could right. like easily see in that case, like I don't know if um like Baltimore decided, you know, we're in a budget issue, you know, city employees are off for now because we can't come up with a budget, but police officers, you'll still be on the streets. And they unpaid. have contracts, I think. Like you have to pay people. It would just – I mean there's like no norm around it. But, you know, I think one of the things that – like a good point you bring up, Matt, is – one of the things you're seeing right now is this shift in essentiality to make things run a little bit smoother. So you see it, you know, like the person you were mentioning, mentioning with mergers, you see the FDA bringing some people back to do inspections because they're right. worried about safety, you know, in a way that, you know, it's going to make it short term less painful for the rest of us, hopefully like less food outbreaks, which will be like a thing I value as someone who eats food in the United States. But <laughs> long term, you know, it just makes it easier for this this to last. You know, I think for a while there's a bit of a theory going around that the place where this shutdown would end is if TSA agents weren't showing up to work and you had massive lines and everyone would be so frustrated with air travel, particularly like, you know, people in positions of power who travel a lot, that that would kind of bring this to a close. And I remember seeing there was a CNN reporter who had like this viral video of a crazy long line in the Atlanta airport. But it hasn't really played out that way at all. You know, you there have been – you've been looking at some of the stuff with like TSA callouts and sick days. It like, doesn't seem like – Call rates are actually down. Like they were high. Yeah. I think a lot, a lot of the kind of press around this happened when they put out the stats from Monday. But Monday for a lot of major East Coast airports was like yeah. there was also a, a pretty good weather-related reason not to show up to work. So like call-out rates are now – they're higher than they were this time last year, but not by a ton. We're talking like 5% versus 4 or 3%. Like we're not talking about the kind of like massive sick outs that people were worried about. And there's been a lot of, I think, like slippery thinking about this. Like every time on Twitter – 
I see like a journalist goes to an airport and there's an unusually large security line. They're like, ah, maybe the shutdown. But if you think about like the 100 largest airports in the United States, right? Like on any given day, 15 of them are going to be experiencing like a one standard deviation than normal level of security lines, right? Like it's just going to happen. Like there are going to be some unusually large lines. There's going to be some places, right? Somewhere in America, there's an unusually large number of sick people today. Right, because like that's just what happens. It's a big country, and it's interesting. Like there was a an anonymous legislator, you know, in in one of these newspaper articles, who was like, "The only way to bring this to an end is for the TSA to go on strike," and you know, it's such a wild thing, right? Because it's it's illegal for them to go on strike, right? Which right? is, I think, why we don't the other the other thing we should talk about when we talk about like local police forces is like it is not literally. I mean, it's in some states it is illegal for right. certain kinds of public employees to go on strike, but like it is not as a general rule illegal for any public employee to strike. But it it had become normalized in the sixties and seventies for federal workers to occasionally stage illegal wildcat strikes. And it was mostly tolerated by the federal government. And then very famously, right, in his first year in office, Ronald Reagan responded to an illegal wildcat strike by air traffic control workers by firing them all. And, you know, they had thought at the time, like, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to fire all the air traffic controllers in America? And he did. You know, and it was a big disruptive problem. For about a week, 50 percent of flights were canceled. There were some people who didn't go out on strike, even though the union called the strike. There were some managers and stuff who had the technical skills. They brought some people in from military air traffic control. They had people work extra shifts. They started hiring more people. And they got the system back up and running. And they, they broke the union. And they also sent a big, powerful message to – Unions in the private sector and in the public sector that like the government was not going to be kidding around, that this was a new Republican administration that lasted 12 years and fundamentally changed the, the culture in the United States. And now you have Republicans themselves kind of saying quietly that like they would kind of like to see an illegal labor action to force Donald Trump's hand because they personally don't want to risk their own jobs by taking on Donald Trump because they'd be risking primaries. And you think about it, right? It's like, look, if you are a Republican senator and you go up against Donald Trump and you lose your primary, worst case scenario is you get a huge pay raise to go be an MSNBC host. Jeff Flake's life is so good. It is, you know what I mean? Like, it is outrageous, like, how high on the hog you get to live by just, like, tanking your career as a Republican senator. Like, the lowest bar is held out for you, right? To be like, sure, I didn't do anything to stop any of these bad things, but I did complain about it in a high-profile way. People are like, oh, you're such a hero, Jeff. You're like, it's it's amazing, right? TSA worker or, or an air traffic controller, you stage an illegal strike, you get fired by Donald Trump, you get barred from renewed federal employment forever. I mean, Bill Clinton eventually reinstated them, but like there's no guarantees there. Nobody's given you a, a book deal or a cable news show. You're not going to get a lobbying job. Like this is a big, big, big risk. Now, I would be supportive of some kind of militant labor action like that. But that's to say like I would not be supportive of firing people for doing it. Like, I, I I would have your backs, but I also totally understand why people don't want to do it. Like, it's not in my power to save your job, right? It would be up to Donald Trump. And I furthermore, like, the people who would be organizing such a strike would be the government unions who, like, as institutions have a ton to lose if the government plays hardball. Like, they, you know, if your literal union existence is being like the association of federal government employees right, and the federal government decides that it's going to like de-recognize you as a union because you engaged in an illegal strike like co by coordinating all your employees like that's not good for your existence right but it's but that's literally what unions are like you know, if only there were some kind of institution that could coordinate among federal employees and get them to stay home, like right. I mean, exactly. So, so you you have this situation where, unfortunately, a lot of things have been done between banning strikes, Reagan sort of putting teeth on that, Trump using the essentialness to actually keep things running, mostly that have cushioned the blow of all of this on people. 
But I'm afraid it makes catastrophic failure more likely. You know what I mean? Like if you had a situation where the day after the first skip paycheck, the TSA workers all walked out with confidence that they couldn't be fired, then you would have a big two-day disruption of American air travel and the government would reopen. And we would know nobody would die in a scenario like that. But if you instead have a situation where Everyone is really trying and the whole thing is being held together with like spit and glue and everybody mostly is doing their job but maybe some people are getting other jobs or just leaving or, or doing whatever. But like nobody's breaking the rules. Nobody is staging like a big symbolic like this needs to stop. Then you're risking that like something that nobody wants to see go wrong does go wrong. And like that's – Unfortunate. Well, in a way, it reminds me of um, the sequester in 2013, uh-huh. where, you know, we had this. If you think back to then, there was supposed to be this big Murray Ryan budget deal. And the idea was if they couldn't reach a deal, then you'd have this terrible thing called the sequester. And it would just be really across the board, blunt cuts. And the sequester was going to be the thing that was going to force congressional action because it would just be so terrible to have this cost-cutting happen in in an indelicate way, in a way where everything is getting cut. But then a deal didn't happen. The sequester took the place, but and it was across the board, but the cuts were not so crazy drastic that they caused people, like, huge harm that we kind of like, okay, like, well, like the sequester is supposed to be this like huge bludgeoning tool. But, it, but it's and worse feels, than that. It feels like a little bit like the sequester shutdown that but, we're but, having But with right the now. sequester, right, so when the sequester hit, there was a problem at airports. And what happened was is that like air travel is fascinating because like if I think about it, I, I was going through my 2018, right? And I went to San Antonio twice. I went to Brooklyn, Maine. I went on vacation in Madrid. I went to Austin. I went to Rochester. I went to Syracuse. And that's me, seven flights. And that's me thinking of myself as somebody who has really cut down on travel uh, <laughs> since I had a kid. The median American takes zero plane flights per year. So there's a very uh, skewed distribution in which, like, you don't need to be part of, like, a hyper elite to fly a lot, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a mass elite flies all the time. And so when there's problems at airports, it's like people who matter, like, really flip out. And that happened during the sequester, right? And what was supposed to happen then was like, aha, the pain is hitting. Now we have to relieve the sequester. But instead, Congress did a patch specifically for the airports. And so like other things— well, That's kind of like the re-essentializing exactly. people version of what's going on exactly. now. And so, and so things that are more insidious, like a loss of preschool places for low-income children, just went on because that was considered tolerable because they'd fixed— the sort of most acute thing. And that's what we have going on here, right? Like if you had it being that like corporate America was saying, wait, we're not going to be able to do anything, right? Or like tax refunds aren't going to go out and the retail sector is going to crash. Then it might get reopened. But now it's like, quote unquote, only the Native American health service that's being totally disrupted. It's just hundreds of thousands of people not getting their paychecks, right? It's not anything like too bad. Anyone who really matters is going to have their problem taken care of. And that's just like devastating for the interests of the lots of people who don't have the kind of pull in Washington that, you know, people who need their mergers done have. Right. I mean, this is a fundamental question in public policy, right? Like, there are some policies that are matters of concentrated benefit and diffuse costs, and there are some policies that are matters of diffuse benefits and concentrated costs. And, like, the shutdown as we've seen it so far has been a matter of somewhat concentrated costs that are being addressed by concentrating them by, like, by kind of sloughing off some of the people who are bearing costs and, and reducing the number of people who are bearing those costs more. So, like, it's not that federal employees are more screwed than the people who are not getting paid are more screwed than they were at the beginning of the shutdown, except insofar as, like, they're spending down their savings. But they are in a position where it is more likely that they will continue to be screwed because there aren't a whole lot of other people who aren't federal employees who are also in the bucket of, oh, this thing that I really need isn't happening. It's not a great situation for policymaking. It's a, 
especially not a great situation for policymaking when those people don't have the kind of levers to pull that other groups do. Like if they don't have the you know same labor rights that a private sector employee would, or if they don't have the kind of public cachet to be able to come out and say, look, our jobs really are important and we do care about them. And that's why we're not leaving and why we're showing up to work. But there's only so long we can do this for. Like, I think I want to circle back to the law enforcement point, because right now between the first and second missed paychecks, like I was hearing a little bit of you know, concern from people like, we don't really know what's going to happen once the first missed paycheck hits. And then after that, it was kind of like, wow, people are are weathering this. They're like gritting their teeth and bearing it better than expected. But the second paycheck is really, really going to hurt. Like, and this, this appears to be an attitude shared across federal law enforcement. There's a really good Washington Post piece that digs into the federal law enforcement agents that you were talking about, Matt, the, like, you know, the FBI folks who, you know, for one thing, uh, Doing FBI investigative work is not just a matter of salary. Like, apparently, people are complaining that they like can't pay informants um, because that's money that they don't have. But also, somebody who you know, works without is working without pay in the budget realm of that was telling me that like that, that they've got some extra money, but but it may run out. Like, yeah, there's and there's they, they definitely something up. And this is and this is something that the TSA tried to do. That I think I think there are a lot of you know, mid to high level bureaucrats in in shutdown agencies right now trying to figure out what the hell they can do to, like, get money to their frontline people who are doing the work and not getting paid. And, you know, like because the bureaucrat, the, the higher level bureaucrats believe in the mission of the agency, they want to make sure that the people carrying out the agency's work feel respected. But the sense there is really like, it's getting worse, but it's getting worse in a much grad, much more gradual sense. Like the harm of this is being individualized in a big way. Like individual people are working out like, how do I make my family's budget or making, in the case of the FBI, requests for external work, which like traditionally the Bureau has declined. But like now they're trying to facilitate so that people can actually keep their FBI jobs while making some money on the side. When it's that individuated a process, you're not thinking of it as a political problem. You're thinking of it as an individual budgetary problem. And so you don't even have the time to be like calling your member of Congress and saying, hey, I'm a constituent and I'm not being paid. Please end this. You're busy trying to make sure that you have enough money to you know, pay your monthly fees. Although to be clear, I mean, the, the FBI Agents Association has called for the government to be reopened. I mean, oh yeah, no, no, and and the, they and the uh, and other federal unions are currently suing the government in a case like they they didn't get the injunction that they wanted, but that's going to continue to go through the courts because, as it turns out, there is in fact a federal statute with criminal penalties, mind you, that prohibits government officials from making people work for free, essentially. So, like, it's called the Anti-Deficiency Act. There's a really good primer on this from the American Action Forum that I'll I'll put in show notes. Uh, it is going to be very interesting when and if government reopens to see if reporting gets made uh, on the Anti-Deficiency Act from people who have been made to work without pay during some of this, like, are you essential or aren't you stuff. But yeah, it's not like the FBI employment associations aren't doing anything. But individual, the individual people who are bearing the brunt of the concentrated costs can't necessarily do as much to take collective action as they would if they were just totally furloughed. But the political center of gravity of this is with the Border Patrol Council, right? Because part of the setup to this whole scenario across 2018 was Republican congressional leaders did not want to go down this shutdown path. And so they worked with Democrats to get appropriations bills structured such that a shutdown, if it happened, would involve defunding the Department of Homeland Security, which doesn't make sense logically or politically because the people who are Trump's sort of validators on the border are – I, I wouldn't quite – they're not the political appointees at the Department of Homeland Security. They are the union leaders who putatively represent the views of rank-and-file Border Patrol agents. And they have been standing by Trump on this subject, right? If they were to flip-flop and to say, look, like, 
you know, we want more money, but like all things considered, it would be better to reopen the government and continue negotiations, then Trump would really not have like a leg to stand on. And in particular, also congressional Republicans who kind of maybe want to turn on Trump would have a great leg to stand on. But they haven't done that. And I have heard from a lot of people who are not in a position to know, uh, just like random liberals have like wish cast in their head the idea that like probably these union leaders don't represent the views of rank and file border patrol agents. I guess that could be true, but I have not seen any indication that it's true. Unions have internal leadership politics. And a thing that does happen sometimes is that a dissident movement arises inside the union where somebody says, hey, the leadership is not representing the interests of the rank and file. And the kind of scenario that's playing out is actually a quite typical one, right? Like sometimes Union leaders are seen as selling out the concrete material interests of rank and file members in exchange for political influence, right? This happens in the public sector. It happens in the private sector too, right? Because, you know, unions wear many different hats in the world, right? And so it's a very typical kind of complaint against incumbent leadership to say like, look, they are making nice with important politicians in ways that benefit them personally, but don't benefit you and me. So that's why we need a new executive council. I just don't see that happening, right? Like it could happen. I, I assume that if the shutdown happens forever, Right, like th th there's some limiting point at which somebody says, like, "Hey, guys, like this doesn't make sense." But I mean, if there's been a peep of it, like I have missed it. There is no dissident border council Twitter feed. Like, there's no there's no active organizing against the current leadership in the union, and the current leadership in the union is. Uh, seems to feel that it is fine for its members to not get paid if that's what it takes to get a $5 billion appropriation for steel slats. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a ton more insight into uh, National Border Patrol Council dynamics uh, than you do, Matt. So, I, like, I genuinely don't know one way or the other if there's any, like, grumbling on private right, I mean, boards. maybe there secretly um, is, but... What I will say is the way that the and you know we talked about this a little bit 2 weeks ago i've written about this the way that the nbpc leadership has you know kind of managed to go from not just an ideolog a fairly ideological union leadership but to a very close ally of the current president of the united states is that they've traded on the fact that border patrol generally has fairly low morale and they've you know kind of unified the bread and butter concerns in that morale with the idea that the border Patrol agents weren't being respected by D.C. bureaucrats who were telling them how to do their job. And the second part of that makes it very appealing to support a president who says, I really want Border Patrol agents to be able to do their job. But there haven't been a lot of circumstances where that's cutting against the bread and butter interests. Like there was a little bit of a, you know, lol hypocrisy kerfuffle like last week when somebody pointed out an old page on the Border Patrol Union website that said we don't need border walls, which like it was much more a we need personnel and technology as much as we need border walls. But also, yeah, there's no bread and butter union interest in a border wall per se. What there is is a bread and butter union interest in there continuing to be a lot of emphasis on people staffing the border. And so if those things actually cut against each other insofar as a lot of Border Patrol agents are, you know, again, like coming up on missing the second paycheck – even people who are ideologically aligned in general with the president and with union leadership, like this is where, you know, it comes back to you can't eat principles. I think there is, you know, as in any institution, there is a spectrum between people who are just doing Border Patrol work for the paycheck and people who are like absolutely super gung ho would do this for free if they could. The longer a shutdown goes on, the more of those people start seeing their lack of getting paid not as a political battle, but as a paycheck battle. And so I don't think like I don't see a, an NBPC coup happening anytime soon. But I do think it's worth noting that after that, like the big, you know, White House press conference with union leadership was two weeks ago at this point. Like they haven't been as much out there you're not necessarily you're not seeing the same kind of visibility backing up Trump now that it's an actual paycheck plus on the line support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information 
where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to the weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burrow's furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com slash Vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. One space of this we haven't even talked about is this whole world of contractors who are also on hold. Because I think that's one place where you could also where you could really see the erosion of service. I think it's a harder place to kind of pinpoint you know, what is actually happening. The Washington Post had a report that you have about 10,000 different businesses who are contracting with the federal government. But that's a place where there's no guarantee of getting paid back. I believe um, Tina Smith, the senator from Minnesota, has a bill that would get contractors repaid. I don't know that it's, you know, moving anywhere, especially quickly. But that is definitely a place where I think these workforce challenges could – and I would say contracts are a huge part of the federal government. You have people sitting in federal buildings who are, you know, not employees of the government but employees of some kind of contractor they've brought in to work with. Um, I feel like contract work becomes a – like federal government work becomes a little less appealing. Working for a contract worker becomes a whole lot less appealing, you know, not just with this being out of – but with literally like losing your paychecks in a way the federal government isn't going to. And 
And I mean, there are there are different versions of this, right? I mean, like there are people who work for like food service outsourcing companies, right? And you know, low skill, low wage workers, and those guys seem to be just like SOL in this situation, right? And then there are people who do. There are like computer programmers work for companies that do contract work for the federal government. Those contracts are put on hold, but then the companies have to decide. Like they can do what they want and keep right. paying people. And my understanding is that in most cases they have simply continued to pay people, maybe finding them something else to do, maybe not, because you don't want to lose your staff, right? But that situation becomes untenable at a certain point. You can't pay people to just not do anything. Just like here in D.C., right, nobody is telling places that serve lunch downtown that they can't make money. But if people don't show up to work and the people who are showing up to work are needing to pinch their pennies a little bit more, you just don't go get lunch as you know, much so, as you so, used to. And you still have to pay rent to your landlord. And like nobody is going to pay back like the sandwich shop, right? Like there's no prospect of that. They're just sort of random casualties of, uh, you know, events. Donald Trump himself, this was this was the day after Christmas when not a lot of people were focused on the shutdown. But, but he explicitly said uh, on Twitter, do Dems realize that most of the people not getting paid are Democrats? So like the shutdown's fine by him because the, the people suffering are members of the opposition party. And like, I don't know, you know, like every once in a while, like a total rando on Twitter will say would have said something in 2017, like these red states are getting what they deserve if Trump takes their health care away. And like everybody would denounce them. And we've heard this from like leaders of a political movement that like the interests and well-being of people who live in the District of Columbia and Northern Virginia don't count because like ecologically, these are Democratic Party voting uh, members of, of of the country, and it's just a signpost of like really how I just think fundamentally depraved a lot of the the leadership in the current Republican Party is that like that's an unconscionable way to think about your job as a as a government political leader, and I, I want to mention in that regard the sort of absurdity of this this congressional delegation cancellation that Trump has offered here because you know this is another thing where like. We can argue, I suppose, like how important is it really that members of Congress be able to visit American military installations abroad? But it's a thing that the government has traditionally seen as important. Uh, the military installations certainly exist. American foreign policy is important. Congress is like an important part of the government. Uh, people like want to know what's going on. And Trump shut that down for no – like for no reason at all, right? I mean – I don't think he even gave a like official rationale for why it has to be done. Like obviously we know the reason is like vengeance for Nancy Pelosi uh, pulling this stunt with the State of the Union. But like the Defense Department is funded, right? There, there's nothing about the shutdown. As is the legislative branch. Right. <laughs> there's nothing about the shutdown that required this, right? And there was no explanation given. It's, I guess, within the president's authority as the commander in chief to, to do this. But like it's crazy. And like, you know, the idea that it hurts Adam Schiff is very misguided. This is like a very Trump thing, right? And if you think about it, like Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff were actually in a tough situation as of two days ago, which was it's probably not actually a great look for Democratic members of Congress to be like on a world tour in the middle of the shutdown. Uh, but it's also not great to like cancel your trip to go meet with the troops. A great thing to do would be to just have the president for no good reason force you to cancel your trip to meet the troops because now you wanted to see the troops, but you couldn't. But also you're in town working on the shutdown. And then with the administration not having thought this through, started getting questions about the Treasury Department's proposed uh, junket to Davos, Switzerland. Uh, and they sheepishly wound up needing to cancel that too just to not look like assholes. But so now it's like, Steve, I, I don't, you know, I, I've never been to the, the World Forum in Davos, but I am told- Someone should invite us to Davos. They should, because I am told by people who go that even though it's stupid, it's actually quite fun. And that is why people go. Um, I assume that is why the Trump administration Administration had all these people who wanted to go. And now, so like their vacation is canceled. And it's like, it's just like, it's sort of unfathomable that you would have decision making just this shoddy. Yeah. I mean, I would love to think that Adam Schiff at Al are like 
not going to care about the cancellation of their junkets in with all due respect to elected officials, my understanding of members of Congress is that they are all divas who consider any like slight to them personally as the as tantamount to a slight against every one of their constituents. Um, but you know, I I want to circle back a little bit to what you were saying about contractors, Matt, because I think that this kind of it does seem striking to me that despite the kind of occasional folks saying it doesn't matter that they're Democrats, like there hasn't been the principled small government defense of what's going on right now. Because most of the people who are like principled small government defenders either A, know that this wasn't supposed to be how it was supposed to go. Like, you know, a lot of Donald Trump supporters think that the obvious outcome here is for Democrats to cave so that Trump can get wall money and the government can get reopened again. Like, they're not rooting for continued stalemate. But also because people who believe in small government for the sake of preserving business, you know, and we were getting at this two weeks ago, like believe in government running predictably and as efficiently as possible, which means you have to have a small number, but like competent and talented employees. You have to, you know, to the extent that it's cheaper to pay one person a good salary than to pay two people like slightly less good salaries that you still have to pay like pay for benefits for, you actually do have a certain premium on hiring talented people and being competitive with private sector jobs. Like the reason that the kind of neoliberal tech centrist types have started kind of talking about like smart government and thinking about public private, you know, getting people into public service. And there was this wave under the Obama administration of, you know, getting young digital employees into government was that a lot of you know, centrist business type interests understand the value of having a small government that runs smoothly and efficiently. And part of that is having contractors do a lot of that work because contractors give you flexibility without like committing you to a whole hiring infrastructure. If you're in a world where contractors are being so badly jerked around that there's a good question about whether you continue to go up for federal contracts, that's not, you know, that's not good for the continued flexibility of the federal government. If you have the people who are most talented getting offers from the private sector and like updating their resumes, that is not good for a like small but efficient federal government. And so, you know, obviously no one is trying to remake the federal workforce from scratch, but it's definitely worth thinking about, you know, from the perspective of just a good and efficient government that does what it is being instructed to do by the politi- by the political officials well, no one wants anything that we're looking at right now. It is just everybody's worst case scenario, and it's going to continue until something happens to break the stalemate. Oh, I don't know what the something is. <laughs> Feels I mean, pretty stuck. Maybe Donald Trump is something Donald Trump steadily falling approval rating? May I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. The something was supposed to be airport disasters. Like the something is becoming increasingly elusive. Maybe think, it is yeah. is falling approval I like, numbers. I, 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 do, I mean, now I'm actually thinking back to you know what we were saying at the beginning of the episode is that there really does seem to be a change at this point. Like there, maybe something uh, the, is the like second the, I think that you know this is where we've started noticing the fading approval ratings. We are starting to hear the kind of White House Kremlinology stories with like unnamed advisors telling the president this isn't a messaging war anymore. You're playing with live ammunition. Like it does appear that even as we and I think a lot of the furloughed federal employees have gone, well, this week proves that like this is going to go on forever. That kind of fatalism about, wow, we don't know how this is going to end, has panicked some people into saying, oh, it's actually on us. Like nothing is going to happen unless we figure out how to stop people from just being not paid indefinitely. Well, if you've got any ideas, let us know. Share them in the Facebook group, I guess. <laughs> sure. Facebook group, send us an email, uh, give us some tweets. Um, otherwise, you know, we will um, just have to see what happens. It's uh, it's an endless series of wonders uh, here in the, in the Trump era, and it, it just really never stops. Um, so, you know, with that, uh, thanks to all you out there for, for listening. Uh, thank you to Sarah for moonlighting on a Friday episode. Anytime. Uh, thanks to Jeff Geld, our producer, and the Weeds will return on Tuesday. Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. 
Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com slash Vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.